Socrates. How many of you heard of Socrates? Or Socrates? If you got that joke when I said it, I love you. Socrates. He once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. God calls his people to be holy. Amen? That is consciously and conscientiously and continually set apart to live in his company and for his glory. That's why we exist. Now, in order for us to do this, we have to constantly be examining our lives to see if there is anything in our life that needs not be there. We all have to do this. If we're going to be a holy people who are devoted to the glory of God, then we have to always be checking our own lives to see, is there something in there that doesn't glorify God? Is there anything in my life that needs to be there that's not there? For centuries, Christians have made it a habit of measuring themselves morally and spiritually in things done and negatively in things left undone. Now, this relates to our prayer life because we have a paradox of sorts. I cannot examine my own life properly. Okay? I am not capable of doing it. I am biased toward myself. It's all your fault, not mine. I am not capable of examining my life properly. And so this is where prayer comes in. What we have to do is we have to go to God and say, God, please you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, examine my life. Reveal to me the areas of my life that do not glorify you. So when Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living, I want to put a new covenant truth on that and say that is correct. But the only way to examine your life is through the Holy Spirit's power. It is in us confessing that we lack the self-knowledge and we need the Lord to show us how we are doing spiritually. But it makes no difference if we don't have the intent to change. If we are not intent on allowing the Lord to examine us and then changing the things in our lives that do not honor and glorify God, then it makes no difference. In fact, you know how unhealthy your life or to Ask the Lord to examine your life with no intent to change. That's actually going to do more damage psychologically, emotionally. To have stuff revealed in your life that needs to change and then you squash that and push that down and not deal with that, you're actually doing more damage to yourself. A prayer that brings these aspects together. Lord, examine my life. And then a, 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 a prayer that confesses to God, I, I am agreeing with you that these things in my life need to change and then being intent on changing them. That's what we're talking about.
this morning. Prayers of examination and prayers of confession. Unfortunately, this part of prayer is often left out. Well, we might be good at the confessing part, but we're not good at the, the examination part. God, examinate me. Lord, reveal truth to me. Lord, do your work in my mind and in my life. But it should be a priority. It should be something we do on a regular basis. You are probably very familiar with this phrase. God is the great physician. Right? We've heard that phrase. We've been around church at any point. And usually when we use that phrase, we're talking about someone's physical um, healing, right? You know, we'll go to the Lord and we'll, we'll say, Lord, we're praying for this person who is sick, this person who has a physical ailment. Lord, we know that you're the great physician and you can, you can work to heal this person. And, well, we should. But we often find that the Lord is the great physician of our spiritual condition. Not just of the physical ailments that we have, but the spiritual ailments that we have, the the spiritual things that are going in our lives. God is the great physician. He is the one like a doctor who does a checkup. He does this spiritual checkup in our lives. He looks and he searches and he sees the things in us that need not be there and, and he points these things out to us. And of course, as we make it a regular practice in our life to go to God with this kind of attitude. The Lord, the great physician, is going to do a checkup on some things in our life. I just want to mention five of them before we get into Psalm 139 this morning. I just want to mention five things that the Lord checks up on. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not like everything there is. But I want to mention five of them. Number one, God checks up on our faith. When we go to God and we begin asking the Lord to examine our lives as the good physician, we're going to look and check on our faith. Do we trust? Do we look out and take careful note to the promises of God found in Scripture? Do we claim them in our prayers? Do we rely on them? Does our faith bring us peace in circumstances through leaning on the Lord? Peace with people because we have faith in God and we love the Lord and we love people through that faith. Or is our faith no more than superstition, leaving us fearful and frantic? Does our faith hold us up under crisis or does it give way under pressure? These are just a few of the questions that the Lord asks as he's examining and checking up on our faith. Number two, God checks up on our repentance. Repentance is more than just a matter of regret or remorse for what we've done wrong. It's a a matter of our mind changing and then us mounting a resistance to go that wrong way again. It is, in other words, a change of life that we are constantly seeking to make. It is a matter of the will, not just our feelings. You know, so many people, they call it repentance when they feel bad for what they've done. It's not really repentance. You could have an emotional sorrow for something you've done or the, and the, the damage that it's done to other people. But real 
Repentance is changing the mind, which involves changing the will and mounting up a resistance to that thing that is wrong. It's a denial of the self and our self-centeredness. Are we taking up our cross and following after Christ? Real Christianity is serious about tracking down the, the false steps of the past and turning from them to walk better. God checks up on our repentance. Number three, checks up on our love. Greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto this. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is love? Whether directed to God, to fellow man, to ourselves. Are we exalting God in our worship? Are we taking care and meeting the needs of others? See, sin enslaves us to the self. Sin enslaves us to look inwardly and to not look toward God first and others and love them. So God exposes the sinful self-love and the lack of uh, proper love for him and others. This is what it means for God to check up on our love. Number four, God checks up on our humility. Pride. Man, pride is our enemy. It's really the essence of the original sin was pride. I want to be like God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. You know, the Romans were not big on humility and mercy. They saw humility as a negative trait. One Roman philosopher said that mercy was the disease of the soul. But in reality, to be puffed up with self and our own achievements is the true disease of the soul. In order to combat evil, we need God to constantly be examining our lives for pride. It's getting really, really real and honest, which we don't like to do. We don't really like to get honest with God or ourselves. You ever notice that when we come to God and we ask the Lord to search us or look into us or we thinking about things that we've done, you notice how we have trouble even being honest with the Lord? As if he doesn't know already? We are smaller and weaker than we realize or care to admit. But humility is seeing this reality and not fighting against it, but understanding that in our weakness, he is strong. God checks up on our humility. And then lastly, God checks up on our wisdom. You, and I'm not saying this to be mean, you and me are much more foolish than we know. And God needs to be constantly checking to see if we are using spiritual, godly wisdom or if we're using human understanding. James 1.5 states, if anyone lacks wisdom, wisdom, what do we do? We ask. 
Do we do this? Do we pray for wisdom? Do we handle things in our own power with our own understanding? Or do we lean not on our own understanding and we seek to have godly wisdom so things don't blow up in our face? Now, we could go on and on and on about things that God checks up on. But I think you're getting the picture here, right? We need to go to God regularly, daily, consistently, asking God, examine my life, check on my faith, check on my repentance, check on my love, check on my humility, check on my wisdom. This can't be something we just ask the Lord to check up on once in a while. This has got to be an ongoing part of our life of prayer. Just like you make an appointment with your doctor, you need to regularly go to the Lord to ask him, Lord, survey me. Lord, examine me. Lord, look at my life. Where do I need to grow? Where do I need to abandon things? It's not asking God to find out something he doesn't know. It's asking God to reveal to you what you may not know or what you've been in denial of or rebellion of. We have this beautiful psalm in Psalm 139. I want you to turn there. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's a psalm that demonstrates what we're talking about. It's written in the first person, which I love, because it's designed to be read very personally. The psalmist wrote this, David wrote this, it was a very personal thing for him. And when we read it, we are to read it in a very personal way. The I becomes you, not just David. Every single person who reads or hears Psalm 139 is to individualize it. God is asking all of us personally and directly, every time we read Psalm 139, it's God saying, is this your prayer? Or is this just David's prayer? Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more numerous than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This psalm is broken up into six stanzas. Six verses, if you will, right? That's how we're kind of used to to talking about it. There's six stanzas to this psalm. The first is in verses 1 through 6. When we're looking at this, we are looking immediately at the presence and admiring the greatness of God. And we see the key phrase in this first stanza, you know. That's the key phrase of the first stanza, you know. He says, O Lord, you have known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, before a word is on my tongue. You know it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. We see that word know mentioned over and over and over again in this first stanza. And just to let you know that when you're studying scripture and a word is repeated over and over and over again, guess what that should probably make you do? Focus on that word. Focus on that idea. There's a reason why it's being repeated. I love that as David is is talking about this knowledge that God has, he says, this is too wonderful for me. I I can't attain this. I, I can't understand this. I don't have this kind of knowledge, but God does. God knows you through and through. This is a breathtaking reality. God knows you down to the smallest particle of your existence. Everything about you, everything you are made of, every thought you have before you think it, every word that you speak before you speak it, every intention, every desire, everything, God knows it. Now for some, that becomes unnerving. In fact, the the late anti-theist Christopher Hitchens hated this about the Christian God. He hated the fact that God could judge you based upon your thoughts. It scared him. He he hated the idea of a God who could condemn you to hell for what you think, not just what you do, but what you actually think. It unnerved him that the God who knows every square inch of the universe, who names every star, who understands the most complex philosophy, science, and math, who has numbered the hairs on your head, also can read your thoughts, your desires, your motives, your dreams. That makes people uneasy. But for followers of Yahweh, for lovers of Jesus, 
For believers, this brings us great comfort. This doesn't scare David in the psalm. It brings him great comfort. God knows you, Christian. He knows every weird, wonderful, and unworthy thing about you. And he still loves you. That's what makes it so breathtaking. That God knows every fiber of my being and he loves me anyway. This is too wonderful for me. Second stanza, verses 8 through 10. By the way, that's the omniscience of God. It's what theologians call the omniscience of God. He knows all things. Verses 8 through 10, now we're talking about the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. The key phrase here is, you are there. He says, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take up the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. You can never, ever get away from God's presence. You can never escape it. You can't shake free of it. We will never be outside of it. He is always, we are always in the palm of his hand. C.S. Lewis wrote, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks incognito, and the incognito is always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake, and still more to remain awake to this truth. God is everywhere. Now, this, again, can bring you great comfort or make you uneasy. The truth is, how we respond to this reality reveals a great deal about our spiritual health. If we are uneasy in welcoming God's presence, maybe this reveals a spiritual sickness in us. Something private that we wish God couldn't see. Right? That's why we get uneasy with this. If God is everywhere, that means he sees everything I do. I don't want to be awake or stay awake to that fact because that, that makes me uneasy because he, he sees and knows everything I do. The things that need confession, the things that need healing from the Lord. But again, for David, this was not something that brought him fear. This is something that he thought was glorious. Omnipresence or omnipresence of God. So God knows all things and he is everywhere. And then in verses 13 through 16, now the psalmist speaks of the omnipotence of God, the, the power of God. The key phrase here is you formed. God by his power formed you. He forms your circumstances. He forms your hours. He forms your days. He forms everything about you. He says, you formed my inner parts. Your eye saw my unformed substance. Long before ultrasounds were created, God could see every baby being born, every baby being formed for that matter. God knew him or her, and because it was God himself that was forming that baby, Every part of that baby, 
That's why God knew it. So what the psalmist is doing now is he's blending what God knows with God being everywhere, and now he's bringing in the power of God. God knows everything. He is everywhere. That means he knew me and he was with me when I wasn't even fully formed yet in my mother's womb. Now, this has some powerful implications. Here's what he says. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Now, I want to pause here for a second and talk about this. Because this is kind of starting to get to the culmination of of David taking and talking about the nature of God. There are some people who say, they've asked myself this question, I know they've asked Brother James this, this question, that when it says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, people say, you believe that literally? You, you literally mean that God has formed every detail of my life out before I've even lived it? Now, I emphatically say yes to that. Without apology, I say yes and amen. Here's why I do that exegetically from interpreting Scripture properly. Was David being serious when he said, God, you formed me in my mother's womb? Was, God being, was David being serious when he said that about God forming him? He wasn't exaggerating. He literally said, God, you formed me when I was in my mother's womb. You, you wove my parts together. You, you made me who I was. David wasn't speaking hyperbolic there. He wasn't exaggerating to make a point. He literally believed God was formed him in his mother's womb. Well, now he takes the same concept and he says, and you formed my days too. And as intricately as he formed my substance in my mother's womb, he forms my days just as intricately. He has planned out my life. David is not exaggerating. David has been surveying the greatness of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and now his, um, his uh, omnipotence. And he's not saying, well, I'm just kind of exaggerating all these points. He is saying, listen, there is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that, there's nowhere that God is not. And there is nothing that God cannot do and has not done. God is all powerful, he is everywhere, and he knows all things. And you know why I know David believes this to be literally true? Because he burst out into an overwhelming praise. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. They are more than sand. You see, as David begins thinking about the greatness of God, it causes him to be overwhelmed. If this is hyperbole or exaggeration, or if he doesn't literally mean it to be true, then he wouldn't get all worked up about it. He'd be like, well, I didn't really mean it. He didn't know everything. I was just, you know kind of exaggerating. Oh, he does, he's not everywhere. He doesn't plan out my whole life. It informs all of me. But because David believes those things are literally true, he says, 
How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. The greatness of God's thought are beyond number. The psalmist can go to sleep counting them, and when he wakes up, the greatness of God is still staring him in the face. It's, the greatness of God is overtaking David at this point because he believes these things are literally true. Now the next stanza, we're working toward the end, guys, if you don't know how, how it ends. But the next stanza seems weird and kind of seems out of place almost. Okay, it seems a little strange. David's like, I hate people. It's kind of what sums it up. He's like, God is great. I'm overwhelmed by his thoughts. I hate people. I want to say a few things about verses 19 through 22 because they do seem a little out of place. I don't want to just skip over them. By the way, a lot of people, when they preach through this, they'll just, people have just skipped over this part because they're like, well, I mean, it's, it doesn't sound as like fun and uplifting as what we just heard. Let me tell you a, few, a couple things about, I think, what's going on here. First, the psalmist, as he's writing this, is very intense emotionally right now. He has just written a song about the greatness of God, and he's used up all of the vocabulary and everything that David could throw into a song to speak about the greatness of God, he's just done it. Like he has poured himself out emotionally. And now he's like praising God emotionally. He's, he, his affections are stirred when he, when he thinks about who God is. And he jumps from how great God is and how great he thinks he is to thinking about how some people don't think God's great. He's like, God knows everything and he's everywhere and he has all power and he formed me and he created my days and this is the most wonderful thing I could ever think about and there are people who don't love him? People who hate my God that I just described? I hate them too then. His intensity is still very, very high when he gets to this point. Secondly, the psalmist is like all the prophets of old. He has a huge, aching passion to see the Lord recognized as the true one living God. And he knows that the enemies of God worship false idols and do not love Yahweh. And he has a passion to see God bring a reckoning. So that everyone will recognize who he is. So all those that want to make enemies of God, Lord, destroy them to prove who you are. Now, should I pray this prayer for human beings in the new covenant? The answer is no. I should not pray, Lord, I hate people who don't know you. Does that not go against everything Jesus said we're supposed to be? So how can we, with a full revelation of God and his word, how can we take these words and apply them appropriately in our personal prayers? It's not by directing them toward human beings. They're not our enemy. We're supposed to be living for them. We're supposed to be living for the lost. Who do we direct this to? The real enemy. 
Jesus, I mean, Paul was clear. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're, we're now to direct this, not at flesh and blood, but to the devil and the demons. So if you pray these verses today, please don't pray them toward lost people who don't love Jesus. We're supposed to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Direct them toward the spiritual powers of darkness that lay behind all the evil that we see in this world. So I just wanted to make mention of that just because I didn't want to skip it and be like, how come we didn't talk about that? But now we come to the conclusion of this song. How does he end his song? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David, having celebrated the attributes of God, having laid out the greatness of God, having focused on who God is, he now turns to God for his checkup. He says, this is who you are. This is what you can do. Now please examine my life. You know me. You're here with me. You have the power to do it and the power to change me. Oh God, examine me. Look at me. Survey me. Show me where I am wrong. He wants it to be thorough. And because he knows who he is praying to, he expects it to be thorough. Right? He's expecting God to really get down in it because he's like, well, you know everything and you're everywhere and you're all powerful. So when I say search me, I know who, I, I know who I'm praying to here. I'm expecting this to be a thorough examination of my life. If you see something wrong, God, tell me and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't want to be a person who has these sinful thoughts and these wicked things in my life. So God, search me. Bring those to the surface. Show me where I'm wrong because I want to walk in the way everlasting. And if you don't search my heart and you don't do that work in me, then I am not going to walk the right way. Please come do this work, God. Do it thoroughly. Dig down deep in there. Show me. You know why we get real quiet right now? Because this is hard. Because I know me and you know you. This is hard. We're really good at putting on a face and coming to church and acting like we're doing pretty good. What this prayer does is this prayer says to God, God, if there is anything good not in me, dig it out. Get it out of me. Because I know the way that that path leads and it is not the way everlasting. I want to walk in life. I want to walk in victory. I want to walk in freedom. And I can't do that if I'm tangled up in my flesh and not walking in the spirit. So Lord, search me. Try me. See if there is any wicked way in me. And now how does, how does God do this? How does God search us? 
I think there's two primary ways. Number one, Scripture. Isn't it amazing when you say, God, search me, know me, all of a sudden, Scripture passages will start popping in your head about things that that you're not following properly or things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Verses will pop in, in your head. The Bible teaches us the standard and ideals for godly living that should be on our conscience regarding the realities that we're living in and what we should be living in. All the realities we discussed, faith, repentance, love, humility, wisdom. Secondly, though, the Spirit of God forms questions in our minds that we have to answer. You ever, you ever noticed how many questions preachers ask of their people when they're, when they're preaching? Because what we want is we want these questions we ask to be grabbed a hold of by the Holy Spirit and asked to you. I mean, it doesn't matter if I ask you a question, but if the Holy Spirit asks you a question, if the Holy Spirit begins to question your goals and your motives, and your attitudes, all the places of your life that you try to keep secret, if the Holy Spirit of God starts asking you questions about those places, now you got to deal with that. And we as pastors know that that's what God does, so we put messages together and then we ask questions at the end of our sermon, knowing that the Holy Spirit's going to grab those and start doing what the Holy Spirit does. So the way that God searches us is he brings to mind scripture and then he begins asking questions about our will and our goals and our desires and and our actions. He begins asking us these questions, what goes on in, in our lives and in the secret places. So here's my question for us. Do we pray like this? I ask myself the next question, okay, if, if I don't, why don't I? If I know this is the kind of praying that should be regular in my life, and if it's not, why not? Why not? There's a whole lot of answers to that question. I know for me, some of the things I thought about, I thought about, well, that means admitting that I fail a lot. I don't like to admit that I fail a lot. It means that I might have to get honest with other people about the struggles in my own life. What are they going to think about me? Are they going to judge me and dismiss me and write me off? So if I, if I have to start doing this and God brings up stuff that now i got to deal with, man, that's hard. It'd be easier just not to pray this prayer. Ease is not a spiritual discipline. We know we need to do this mentally. I don't think many of us emotionally want to do it. You know what I mean by that? Like, we know mentally, yes, I should pray this prayer. What makes it difficult is we know 
emotionally how difficult that's going to be. But church, listen to me. There is freedom with being genuine and real and honest with the Lord. The video that we play at the beginning of this, when he says, how many times have you prayed? What's he getting at? I'm not talking about lip service. I'm talking about really, really getting real with God. How many times have you prayed like that? How many times have you said to God, God, I know who you are. And I know that I am not everything I should be. Search my life. Wherever you need to go, wherever you've got to dig, whatever, go in there and let's get it out. And we don't want to emotionally do it. But when we do, we find freedom. We find freedom. When we don't, we just bind ourselves all up. If truth sets us free, then what does error do? It binds us up. So when, when we don't deal with this stuff in our lives, we're just binding ourselves back up again. And we're not free. So we're not going to walk as the new humanity that we should walk as because we're bound up as if we're still a part of the old humanity. Are we emotionally, do we emotionally desire to be holy? That's the question that kept coming up in my mind. Do we emotionally desire to be holy? Now, I know mentally we are, right? Because I say, should we be holy? Everyone, yes. Are we emotionally, do we emotionally desire to be holy? Are we willing to do the work? Are we willing to get real and honest, no matter how painful or hard or difficult that that may be? Church, it is our calling. This is our calling to walk as the new humanity in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to go to the Lord daily Admitting, Lord, I need you to examine me. I need you to change. Show me the stuff in my life that doesn't need to be there and empower me to walk in freedom. Listen, we're all in the same boat. It's hard for everybody. Well, Neil, you don't know the stuff I've done. You don't... Listen, we've heard it all. We've done most of it ourselves. Nothing's going to shock us. I'm not asking you to come up and get on the microphone and just tell it to everybody. But go to the Lord and maybe grab a brother and sister in Christ that you trust. It's a tough prayer. It's a tough prayer to pray. But if we want to get serious about walking with Jesus, it's going to require this kind of prayer.